We've been, we've been studying the story of God's grace to us through Jesus Christ. And really, even beyond that, the story simply of, of everything, of how God uh, created all things and how he uh, sustains all things and how his design is in place for all things. And if you remember, um, in the beginning, in the beginning, help me out, God, in the beginning, God. In the beginning, he created the heavens and the earth. And, and God, and God created, and after he created all things, he declared them good. Only it wasn't just good after he finished everything. He, he took time to rest on the seventh day. And before that, he said, it's very good after observing everything that he had made and, and all of his creation. Well, when we look around at life and we look around at the things that we face day in and day out, sickness and heartache and pain and suffering, we recognize, you know what, when I look at things, I don't know that I see it all as being very good. In fact, I'm not sure if I even see it as being much good at all. I mean, I I turn on the news and everything seems to be falling apart. I look at my own life. I get old and I feel like my body's falling apart. How, how is all of this very good? Something went wrong. Would you agree? Somewhere along the line, something didn't work the way it was supposed to. Something went wrong. Well, this morning we're going to see what that something is. And we're going to see how, in fact, everything did go wrong. And how, in fact, it went terribly wrong. So as we do that, let's pray, and uh, then we'll dive into the message this morning and into God's Word. Father, I thank you for Jesus, and I thank you uh, for your grace to us through him. I pray this morning, Lord, that uh, you would show us your grace as we study your Word, and uh, that you would uh, reveal to us in your grace our own sin and our own disobedience and our own shortcomings and the ways that we failed. Because the fact of the matter is that we're as much to blame as we'll see Adam and Eve were. And even though we we know that they're the ones who, who sinned first, they're certainly not the ones to sin last. And we've failed. And we've fallen short of your glory. And Father, it's only by your grace that we're saved. In fact, we look at our lives sometimes and we just wish we could start over and do it different and go back. But the good news is that through Jesus, you do really give us that opportunity. You give us new life. Jesus, you say it's as if we're born again, we're made new. And so, Holy Spirit, I pray this morning that uh, you would speak to me and through me as I speak your words. And um, I thank you that you do forgive me because of Jesus, not because of anything I do, but totally because of what Jesus did for me. And so we trust you this morning. And I pray also though against the enemy, the one who who lies to us continually, who tempts us to sin and whom we often give into. And I pray instead, Holy Spirit, you would work in our hearts and in our church today uh, in such a way that Jesus would be the one lifted up and honored in every way. 
And so I pray all this through Jesus, my Savior. Amen. Well, this morning, right away as we begin, Steve, I'm going to steal a Bible here because, again, my iPad is frozen up. So, and it won't restart. So here we go. Hey, we're, we're talking about disobedience this morning. And evidently, my iPad's being disobedient. It's an effect of the fall. It's a consequence. We'll see next Sunday. Just frustrating. But if you know how the you know how it started in the beginning, what God created everything. He said it was good. And in chapter one of Genesis, we read through and taught through the whole thing last Sunday, and we see how. How after everything God created, he declared it was good. And it gives an overview of the whole story. Well, you get to Genesis 2, and here's what happens. In Genesis 2, God goes back and he repeats one part of the story so far of creation. Now, if you're going to tell a story of something you created, and you're going to retell part of it, what part are you going to retell? The best part, right? You're going to retell the best part, the most important part. And that's what God does in Genesis chapter 2. He goes back and he retells the story of the creation of Adam and Eve. It's just another account in more detail of how exactly Adam and Eve were created. Because in Genesis 1, verses 26 and 27, it's, then, then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man, man and woman, in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female. He created them. So we learn God created us. Well, in Genesis chapter 2, we get a better picture into how all this happened. Look at verse 4. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created. In the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, when no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land that was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of the dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east. And there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that's pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon, the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there's gold. And the gold of that land is good. Bedalia and Onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gahon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river, the Tigris, which flows east out of Assyria. And the fourth is the Euphrates. Verse 15, Well, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. He gives him one command in the garden. He says, don't eat from this tree. And I've told you this before, but when we read about the Garden of Eden, it's not the garden in your backyard. It's not even the garden on the edge of your field. <laughs> it's not even your field. It's like a national park is what we're talking about in terms of the garden. It's massive. It's huge. Filling all these lands between the river. I mean, it, it was a huge area of land. 
And in all of that land that was lush and beautiful and very good, God said, it says at the end of chapter 1, he, was, he gave them every seed-bearing fruit to eat of. Every seed-bearing tree. They could eat of all of it. Just not one. Just not one. They had all of it to eat from. You know what that tells me? Is that God's command to Adam and also to Eve, because he forms Eve out of Adam right after that verse where we stopped. But the Lord's command was for their good. God's command for them was for their good. He said, don't eat of this tree because if you eat of it, what'll happen? You'll die. Now, so often when we think of God's commands and we think about the Bible and we open it up and we read it or we hear people speak about it, we go, man, God just wants to ruin my fun. He's got all these rules, all these commands. It's such a pain. I'm never going to get it right. Forget this. And, and so many people, they view God's word that way and they push it aside and they push the church aside and they turn away never to return because they fail to recognize, they've believed the lie that God's word isn't for their good, yet it is for your good. And God's command to them was for their good. That's your first fill-in, I believe, isn't it? It's for their good, God's command was. And his command is for your good. It's for your good. See, here's the deal. When, when God lays out some of these rules for us and how to live our life, when God says don't, you know what he's really saying? He's saying don't hurt yourself. Don't do that because it's going to hurt. Don't eat from the tree because when you eat of it, you'll surely die. When God says don't, what he's really saying is don't hurt yourself. All of his commands are for your good. The psalmist says that over and over, how he delights in the law of the Lord because it's for his good. Do you believe God's commands are for your good? I do, yet like Adam and Eve, sometimes I'm deceived and I either just forget or I willfully ignore it. Do you? Well, not only is God command for their good, number two, that's your cue, Bryce. Number two, God's command would test their loyalty and their trust in God, their creator. God's, God's command would test their loyalty and trust. Sometimes we look at it and we go, well, why did God even allow us to disobey? Why did God, I mean, if, if God didn't want us to disobey, why did he even allow it? Why didn't he just make us to where we couldn't sin? And then everything would still be perfect, like the harmony we talked about last Sunday. And perfect relationship, perfect good. You think about it, if he did that, what kind of God would he be? Would he really be loving and would we really even be in his image then? Because by being in his image, we have moral responsibility. We're able to to make choices like that out of our free will. And if God just programs us like robots to always love him and always do right, where's the love in that? He, he gives a command, and it wasn't restrictive at all, we're going to see, but it was, it, was, it was for their good, and all they had to do was obey this one command, and everything continued greatly. Yet if God doesn't give us the opportunity to disobey, does he really give us the opportunity to love him and to be loved? And when you boil it down and you really think about it, and you take it to its lowest common denominator, you realize if, if God doesn't give us that opportunity, then really he's just kind of a manipulative jerk who doesn't really love us, but he just, we're just pawns in his game. Yet the truth is he loves us. He is in control, right? But he loves us. He loves you. 
And he gives us that opportunity, and he gave it to Adam and Eve. And sadly, we'll see here in a moment, they disobey, and they fall, and they fail. But let's think more about God's command. You you think about it in terms of a national park, right? And not just a little garden in your backyard. This means God's command to them was not restrictive. It wasn't restrictive. Sometimes we think of God's commands as just weighing us down, and there's so many things I've got to do. And the truth is, it's not restrictive. He said you could eat of any tree in the garden, just not one. Does that seem restrictive to you? I mean, imagine when you're growing up, students, imagine if your parents, they only have one rule for you. When you're little, you can do anything you want. They just have one rule. Don't touch that tree. Would that be cool? You do it. Yeah, the eyes are big. Yeah, that'd be awesome. That's, it's not restrictive at all. And that's what God gives Adam and Eve. It, it wasn't restrictive. Yeah, turn with me to chapter 3. See what happens here. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Help Eve out. Is that what God said? Is that what he said? Did he say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? No. He didn't say that. He said, You shall not eat from this tree, just the one tree. And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. She took of its fruit and ate and also gave some to her husband who was with her. And he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. They disobeyed the one kind, good, unrestrictive command that God gives them. And that's it. And immediately... The harmony is destroyed. The, the rift is made. We'll see some of the consequences of this next week more in detail, but suddenly they feel, think about that, they feel shame for the very first time. They had never felt shame. For the very first time, they experienced death. As a little later in the verse, they, they watch as God comes looking for them and he kills an animal to give them clothes. And they hear the screech of death for the first time. And they hear the tearing away of that harmony. And they had to have wondered for a moment, what did I just do? What did we do? What have we done? Their consciences were seared by the fact that they had disobeyed God. Well, we read that in chapter 3, starting in verse 1, now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field. Well, who's this serpent? Who is this person? Yeah, it's Satan. And turn with me for a second to the, the book of Isaiah. Actually, it'll be on the screen for you. And, and read with me from Isaiah. Sometimes we wonder, okay, so if God made everything good, where did this guy come from? 
Where did the serpent come from? Where did Satan come from that he messed everything up? Well, the, the, the fact of the matter is we don't have a lot of detail from God's word of, of how it happened or when it happened. But what we do know is that Satan is a fallen angel. And here's one of the accounts from Isaiah chapter 14 describing his fall. How you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn. How you are cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. Above the stars of God, I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of the assembly in the far reaches of the north. I'll, I'll ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. Satan is a created being. He's not an equal power to God. He is, he's someone who uh, was created good as an angel to serve God. We don't have an account in scripture of the creation of the angels. Evidently, God didn't think that was something we needed to know. He didn't make a mistake by not putting it there. But what we find out from this passage is is that Satan was an angel. And somehow he also had some type of free will to where he rebelled against God. And he decided, I'm going to be like him. I want his position. I want a promotion. I want to be in charge. I want to have it. And mine, mine, mine. I will be like the most high, he said. And in doing so, here's what happens. But you are brought down to Sheol, to the far reaches of the pit. The reality is, loved ones, that hell and, and the torment that, that those who failed to trust Jesus Christ faced for their sin was ultimately created for Satan because of his rebellion. And it's a place where he'll be punished for eternity. And we're told throughout scripture that, that it was a third of the heavenly host, a third of all the angels that fell and followed Lucifer, that followed him in rebellion. When did that happen? How did that happen? I don't know exactly. But clearly before chapter 3 of Genesis, it did. And now in his quest to become like the Most High, to usurp his authority, to reverse what God has created, Satan comes in the form of a serpent and he comes to the woman And he says, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Now, the truth is, he's a fierce enemy to the gospel and to us. He's a fierce enemy to God himself. And his desire, his plan is always to reverse what God has created. What God's declared good, he wants to undo and make no good. And he's always trying to thwart God's plans. But as you and I know, that's a bad plan. Because he won't be able to. Yet it appears as for an instant in Genesis chapter 3 that he has done that. And, and, and Satan, number one, you need to know he's a fallen angel. He's a created being. He's not on par with God. It's not this cosmic battle between good and evil. And who's going to win? Will, will good win? Will God win? And, or will, will evil win? Will Satan win? That's not what's going on. When you, when, you, when you look at the news today and you, you see different things happening, is good going to win or is evil going to win? Well, evil might win the battle for right now, but I'm telling you, it's not going to win in the end. Jesus Christ will win. Because number one, he's God. He created Satan. He's not going to allow him to take his place. Jesus is the creator. He is in control. And you need to know it's not good versus evil on par. It's good and there's rebellion. There's evil trying to usurp it. And that's who Satan is, and that's what he's trying to accomplish and how he begins it in Genesis chapter 3. 
But here's what he does is he distorts the truth by twisting God's word. And he does the same thing to us today. He tries to get us to believe the lie. He lies to us. And he tells us similar things that he tells Eve here. He tells Eve in chapter 3. He says, did God really say that? Did he really say you shouldn't eat from any tree? Now, if you're just reading casually, you're just kind of listening, not paying much attention. You're like, yeah, I think God did say that. That sounds like something God said. He said something about not eating from the tree. He must have said not eat from any tree. Man, God is such a jerk. He's so restrictive. And do you see how subtle it is? He just adds, did he say not any tree? And he's like, no, he said one tree. He said one tree. And he distorts and he twists God's word. And he does the same thing today. Is he'll, he'll take God's word and he'll, he'll lie to you and he'll accuse you. And when Jesus says that if you simply believe, if you simply repent, if you simply turn to him, you'll be saved. Satan would say, are you sure you did that? Are you sure you, you're doing enough good? Are you sure you did enough good to be right with? Are you sure? I don't know. And then he'll point to other passages that speak of holiness, which is true, but not recognizing and ignoring the fact that our holiness is accomplished through Jesus Christ. And so when Satan lies to us, we need to say, yeah, we may be sinful, we may be messed up, but we have a Savior in Jesus. And James, Jesus' little brother, says that when we resist Satan, not when we fight him, by the way, the Bible doesn't say anything about rebuking Satan. And so don't fall into that. That's nonsense. It doesn't say that. It speaks of resisting him as a believer. And when we resist him, the Holy Spirit gives us power to resist him and he'll flee from us because of Jesus, not because of us. But he distorts the word and he's always working to reverse God's design. And all this, but he lies to Adam and Eve. He lies to them. He deceives them. He, he, he makes them believe what's not true. And obviously he doesn't make them. They still choose it willfully, but you know what I'm saying, right? Like he deceives them in such a way that they would believe what isn't true. Here's some of the ways he deceives them. First, he tells them that there were no consequences or judgments for their actions. Oh, just, we never hear this in our culture, do we? Oh, whatever seems good to you, just do it. If, If that's what's right for you, thumbs up, go to town. I'm happy for you. Yet God's word doesn't say that. And Satan lies to us and he lies to all of us and he lies to us through our culture and he lies to our culture saying, just do whatever you want. There's no, there's no consequence for that. All that. The people who say there's consequence, they're just, they're jerks like God. But there is consequence, right? And you'll see immediately if you keep reading that they suffered consequences right away for their sin. He also lies to them and deceives them by telling them that they could be like God. That if they would, if, if they would just, you know, you know why God doesn't want you to do that? Because he doesn't want you to be like him. Yet again, if we're good students of scripture and we're good students of what God says, we'd recognize in chapter one, God already made them how? Like them. <laughs> like him in, their, in his image. They were already like him. He lies to them. He deceives them. Now, they're not God, but they're like him. They image him. Loved ones, he does the same to us all the time. Oh, if you just do that, you'll feel better. If you just ignore that, that'll be okay. If you just stay bitter with them, that'll teach them a lesson. What, what is it for us? What are, the, what are the lies we're believing? Don't believe the lie of the enemy. 
believe the truth of God's word. Well, now we come, we've seen God's command to Adam and Eve. We've seen the, the enemy who deceives them. But I should also mention that though Adam and Eve were deceived, they willfully chose to disobey, right? Satan deceived them, but it was their choice. They're not off the hook for it. And we might be deceived, but we're not off the hook for it. We still make willful choices to disobey. And then we get to Adam and Eve and their sin. And number one, they disobeyed willfully and ate of the fruit, right? I mean, that's clear. And guys, if you think for a minute that somehow Eve is more to blame because she ate first, did you read the whole passage? What does she do? She turns. It doesn't, it doesn't say she took of its fruit and ate and then ran around frantically trying to find her husband so he could have some too. No, it says, verse eight, she, or verse 6, excuse me, she took of its fruit and ate and she also gave some to her husband who was with her. He was right there the whole time. I've said it before, I'll say it again. He, like everyone in this room, guys, we do the same thing. He was a coward. He was a coward. He didn't stand up and stop Eve from eating it. But he just went right along with it. And he took the fruit and he ate. They both disobeyed. It wasn't one of them. It was both of them. Not only did they disobey and eat of the fruit, but in rebellion, what they decided in disobeying is that they were going to be the ones to determine right and wrong, not God. And when we sin, that's exactly what we do. Is we, we say, God, that's not wrong, not for me. It's okay. And in sinning and disobeying, we rebel and we put ourselves like Satan did in the place of God. And, and we become the determiners in our minds of what is right and wrong. But there, does that work? No, it doesn't work. We can't determine what's right and wrong. It's been determined by God himself. And when you see the consequence of what happens... Verse 7, then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked. They knew. They knew. They understood. They experienced it is the the deep meaning of that word. They, They just understood at a heart level that they had messed up. And they became insiders to evil. They knew it from the inside. That's not something you want to know from experience, is it? And yet they did now simply because of their sin. Now, when we look at this, we need to recognize that every one of us, myself included, we're just like Adam and Eve. We're just like them. We willfully disobey. We willfully rebel. We willfully turn from God. We may be deceived by the enemy in the same way, but the truth is it's on me for my sin. And it's on you for your sin. As Isaiah says, all of us have fallen, right? We, we've all strayed like sheep. We've gone away. Each has turned to his own way. Like what Paul says in Romans, no one is good, not one. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. We all deserve God's wrath because of our sin. Every one of us, we're insiders to evil like Adam and Eve were. And the truth of the matter is that that all of the harmony and all of the good we spoke of last week were to blame for it being messed up. 
We desire that because we have it written on our hearts as being image bearers, but the truth is that, that we've messed it up, and the only way to get back to that is through Jesus Christ. And I look at my life, maybe you look at yours, and do you ever just wish you could hit the reset button and start it over and go back to Genesis 2 when life was good? And it was like leave it to beaver all the time. And everything was good and great and wonderful and perfect relationship with God. No misunderstandings, no hard feelings, no achy bodies, no sin. The good news is that when Adam and Eve sin, if you look at, we'll get more in depth into this in the story, but I'll skip ahead for today for a bit. When you read the rest of chapter three, in verse eight or nine, it says, after Adam and Eve, they went and they sinned. And then did you notice what happens? God comes looking for them. And he says, hey, where are you? Where are you? Now, is God angry about their sins? Sure, of course. Yet what does he do? He takes the initiative to go find them. And he takes the initiative to come find us. And ultimately, even right after all of this happens, he promises in Genesis 3.15 to send someone to fix what they've messed up. And it's the first mention of the gospel, of the good news. And he promises that one will come, a seed of the woman, who will, he says it to Satan, who will, you may bruise his heel, but you'll, he'll crush your head. And it's a promise that God is going to fix what we've messed up. And he pursues us saying, where are you? Well, the good news is, loved ones, that if, if we need that, the only hope that we have for that is not ever in ourselves, but it's in Jesus Christ. Your only hope for things to be reset are in Jesus Christ. To return is in Jesus Christ. Peter uh, writes in uh, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24 and 25, he, that he, he bore our sins in his body on the cross. And that, that we ought to return to him as the shepherd and the overseer of our souls. That we ought to return to him. Well, it begins first, if you've never turned to him, by turning to him. By trusting him. By becoming a Christian. I told our students this. I mean, you don't become a Christian by going to church. Just like you don't become a, a, a chalupa by going to Taco Bell. You can sit in Taco Bell all day, but it doesn't make you a chalupa. You sit there long enough, you eat enough, you might look like a chalupa. You might smell like one. You won't be one. You come to church long enough, you might do all the right things and get all the right phrases down and know exactly how to act, but it doesn't make you a Christian. Your good works don't save you. Jesus Christ saves you. And if you want to become a Christian, don't just come to church, come to Jesus. Turn to him in faith. And because of all that he's done on the cross, he saves you to any who would believe. Now, there's others of us, we've trusted Christ, right? And we need to heed the warning from Peter in the sense of we've turned away. We've strayed from him. I don't know about you, but I found this to be often a daily, hourly, sometimes minute to minute thing where in my thoughts or in my actions, 
I stray and I turn and I, I do just what Adam and Eve did and I rebel and I, I wanna make my will and my desires first, not Jesus's. And yet the truth is we need to return to Jesus Christ. We need to turn back. And the truth is whether you need to turn for the first time or you need to return and come back to him, the call for you is simple. It's repent. It's repent. You know, that's exactly what that word means. That's exactly what repent means. It means turn around. It means turn back. Quit going the wrong way and turn, specifically turn to Jesus. He's the only one with the power and the authority to save you and to make you new and to give you new life. You know, I've told the story before. I'll tell it again. It's kind of like the kid in junior high who's playing basketball, right? And he's really excited, or maybe even younger. He gets the rebound. And as soon as he gets the ball, he takes a couple dribbles, and he goes up for a layup. And he's celebrating, and he's fired up. But what he doesn't realize is that in the moment while he was dribbling down the court with the ball, the whole crowd was yelling, turn around! You're going the wrong way! And sure enough, he did, and he scored in the wrong basket. And that's exactly what the Holy Spirit would be saying to you through me today and through his word. Turn around. You're going the wrong way. Turn to Jesus. Turn to Jesus. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you for Jesus, and thank you that even though we disobey and even though we sin willfully, I think of the church in Corinth where Paul writes that they were even inventing ways to sin. And we look around our culture and that's so true even today. And all of us are at fault. And the truth is the only way anything gets made right again and the harmony gets restored is through your son Jesus and his work on the cross. And so Father, I pray today for those who've never turned that today would be the day they would recognize the way I'm doing it isn't working. I'm like Adam. I'm like Eve. I've, I've sinned and I willfully disobey and sin and turn from the good and wonderful commands that you give me that are for my good and that they need a savior. And so I pray today, today would be the day that they would repent and they'd turn around and turn to you, Jesus. And I pray for the rest of us who've made that choice to become a Christian, to become a follower of your son. Father, I pray... Uh, that through your spirit you would convict our hearts that we would return to you in areas where we need to, that we would, would turn back from thinking that we could go off and do things on our own, but instead turn back to the good and perfect shepherd. As Peter says, the overseer of our souls who longs to, to care for us and shepherd us. Help us all to repent, Father. Martin Luther had it right when he said the life of a Christian is one of continual repentance, of always turning back. Give us your grace to do that. Not that uh, we would be made to look good or great, but Jesus, that you would. And I thank you that you are. So, Father, we pray all these things now in Jesus' name. Amen.